0: For 13 years, Jessica Way was an OBGYN at a successful private practice in Connecticut. She loved her patients, and she says many of her patients loved her. The online ratings and reviews from that time period bear that out. Here's one from 2012. Awesome doctor. She takes time with questions and answers. Knows her field really well. I had a UTI infection, and I was given some antibiotics, and they helped me get better. Thanks, Dr. Way. And here's one from 2015. Dr. Wei is very compassionate. She never rushes you and always takes the time to answer any questions you have. Dr. Wei handled UTIs, IUDs, and DNCs with empathy and the skills she learned in medical school and residency. But over time, she noted a disturbing
1: trend. Women would come in every year for their annual exam. And generally speaking, I would notice that people were getting uh less well, whether it was weight gain or depression or anxiety or some kind of maybe an autoimmune condition. So I had a lot of curiosity about that.
0: And in some ways, it was like looking in a mirror.
1: Moreover, in my own life as a single mother and as a professional woman, I was also struggling with my health, with depression and other things. And I had some curiosity about, well, how do I address this? Many of Dr.
0: Wei's patients also experienced digestive problems or painful periods that couldn't be explained. So a few years ago, she left that practice and went to study something called functional medicine. She learned how many of the physical and psychological issues she saw in her patients and herself were connected and how to address them at their root. In this episode, the mind-body connection in women. I speak with Dr. Wei about how what's going on with our hormones and gut can affect our mental health, and later in the episode, how women diagnosed with hysteria changed how we treat mental illness, and why that seemingly outdated diagnosis still matters today. But first, some news you may have missed. With all of the news about the government shutdown in the U.S., it was easy to miss that the government got something done a few days before Christmas. Something good. On December 21st, President Trump signed the First Step Act into law, a reform package that ought to make the federal criminal justice system a little more humane. The bill made it through Congress thanks to a weird assemblage of social progressives, black Democrats, members of the religious right, fiscal conservatives, and libertarians. And it got Trump's support through the efforts of Jared Kushner and Kim Kardashian, no joke. The law loosens mandatory minimum sentences for drug offenders and allows those serving long sentences for crack charges under old laws to petition for early release. It mandates that prisoners be housed no more than 500 miles from their families and provides funding for programming and classes. And there's a lot more, I'm bringing it up here in Lady Parts because the First Step Act bans the practice of shackling prisoners during pregnancy, labor, and postpartum recovery. It also requires prisons to provide tampons and pads for free. Topeka K. Sam, an advocate for the law and founder of Ladies of Hope Ministries, told NPR about her experiences in federal prison that motivated her activism. Here's a clip. I had uterine fibroids. And for those of us out there who understand what that is, we have very heavy cycles. And sometimes you can have be on your, your cycle for a month. And so I would ask them for more sanitary napkins. And they told me that I had to quantify my periods, which means I had to take the used pads and put them in a brown paper bag and show them to a male officer so that they would give me more. And though I had resources and I had family support, friends sent me money. I worked the number one job at Unicorn, so I had a grade one position, which afforded me the opportunity to purchase pads. They sp- still put a limit on how many packages of pads I could buy. Like the passage of state laws that have exempted pads and tampons from being taxed as luxury goods, this is an important step in systems acknowledging that periods are not invisible and menstrual hygiene is not negotiable. Unfortunately, I doubt the Bureau of Prisons is going to start stocking up on Tampax anytime soon. According to the Marshall Project, up to half of federal prison employees are furloughed due to the shutdown, and the rest are working without pay. Links in the show notes. Coming up after a break, my interview with Dr. Wei. Hey, you. I want to know about you. This is episode four, and as of this recording, Lady Parts has been downloaded 565 times, and that's great. But by and large, I only see my listeners as dots on a map. Like, I know someone in Halifax, Nova Scotia, has downloaded a bunch of times. Holla, Halifax! But I want more of a connection. What topics are you curious about? What perspectives can you offer? What do you think about the episodes? Do you know something that could help another listener with their health? Are you interested in being a guest? To that end, I started a Facebook group to try and gather you together. You can find the public page at Lady Parts Pod and get to the private group from there or click the link in the show notes to go straight to the private group. If Facebook is not your jam and you have another idea for forming online community, please let me know. You can always tweet me at Andrea underscore Maraskin or find me on the gram at Andrea Maraskin. Dr. Jessie Way is a board-certified OBGYN. She's also certified in functional medicine, and she opened a functional medicine practice for women in West Hartford, Connecticut in 2017. I became her patient last summer, and one of the first things she asked me, not when was your last menstrual period, but what do you want your health for? What do you want from your life? Here's the interview.
1: So what is functional medicine? So functional medicine is just a term to describe really how we should be taking care of ourselves overall. Functional medicine specifically gets to the underlying root cause of why anyone has a symptom that they have, rather than just looking at the symptom and treating the symptom. So for example, you might say, oh, well, I have a skin outbreak, and that has to do with my skin, so I'm going to apply a steroid cream or something of that sort, when in reality, a skin problem most likely has to do with some kind of gut imbalance. And so really, to treat that, you'd want to treat gut imbalance.
0: OK. So let's define a few terms before we get into the connection, mind-body connection in women. So let's define
1: stress. So what is, what is stress? If we had kind of an official definition, we might say that stress is a specific response by the body to a stimulus that disturbs or interferes with a norm, normal physiological equilibrium of an organism. So that's a very technical um, definition, but basically, it's anything that disturbs balance in our body. And what is inflammation? Inflammation is a normal response to something that come that we come into contact with that we're not either not used to having contact with, or we're not we're not meant to have contact with. So, for example, if we get an infection, then the body mounts an immune response, and that's called inflammation, where there's white blood cells that are um, called on to respond to that that foreigner or that invader. And so that results in some kind of reaction to either destroy or to get rid of that acute infection. The problem comes in where the body is chronically having some kind of stressor, let's say, something that is chronically being exposed to. And then there's this thing called chronic inflammation. And when b- the body gets chronically inflamed, then we start to have breakdown of lots of different things in the body.
0: I guess what's been really interesting to me is how antibiotics affect the gut and, or things that happen that affect the microbiome, which isn't even our own cells, end up later affecting the brain.
1: Whatever we are exposed to, and primarily it's through food and drinking of fluids and water, so we get exposed to different uh, substances through food. We might get uh, exposed to different microorganisms through food that might be beneficial or not beneficial. Um, There can be an inflammatory response within the gut. And with repeated exposure and no time to really heal, gut inflammation will eventually lead to communication with the brain. So there's this gut-brain axis to create inflammation within, um, within the brain. And so that can lead to all kinds of of dysfunction from attention deficit to depression to anxiety to bipolar disorder to all these kind of – for the susceptible susceptible individual, everybody's different. So just because somebody has gut inflammation doesn't necessarily mean they're going to have any kind of manifestation mentally. Often they don't. But for the susceptible person who has a fair amount of gut inflammation or, say, gluten sensitivity or something of that sort – that inflammation is going to affect how how inflamed their brain is and then in turn the function of the brain. Can you talk about how the nervous system and the digestive system are connected? So the the gut is very richly innervated, meaning there's a li- pretty huge, great amount of nerve supply. And part of the connection is through this, this one nerve called the vagus nerve, which has to very much to do with... Something called the parasympathetic nervous system. So, the sympathetic nervous system is that fight or flight overdrive, I gotta act. And the parasympathetic nervous system is generally that rest and digest system. And so, all that enteric um, innervation, as well as blood flow, is how there's information shared from the gut and the brain.
0: So, can you talk about how we get stuck in kind of the stress? of survival loop that affects our physical and mental health.
1: So, generally speaking, we ha- if we were going to if we are going to talk about that, we want to understand something called the HPA axis. And so briefly, that stands for hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. So that's basically the connection from our nervous system, starting with sensory perception in our brain to the hypothalamus, which then tra- gives off signals, signals to the pituitary gland, which is the mass or hormonal gland of the body. And hormones are simply signals, chemical signals. So then from the pituitary gland, there are signals sent out to all kinds of uh, endocrine glands within the body, like the thyroid to the ovaries, and then to the adrenal gland, which, which in conventional medicine, we don't talk too much about the adrenal gland. And yet, it is foundational in terms of understanding how we respond to stress and how the signaling can, can become imbalanced. So briefly, we talked about an acute stressor. The, and so in the situation of Say the the classic uh, examples, the saber-toothed tiger is you see a saber-toothed tiger and you want to run. So your body starts sending out, you have a perception in the hypothalamus, and then your pituitary gland sends out signals to the adrenal gland. And there are two things, kind of two steps that happen. The immediate step is the release of epinephrine and norepinephrine, so that blood flow goes to your extremities and so that you can run. And then maybe about 30 minutes later or so, you really have a surge in uh, a hormone called cortisol. And cortisol's main role, we need it to survive, is to mobilize fuel so that we can act. So in an acute situation, that's a normal response. However, in today's... Environment, we are quote unquote chronically stressed, right? We're taking in input all the time, whether it's traffic or our partner yelling at us or job stress or whatever it is. We have all this sensory input. And never mind other physical stressors like our diet or lack of exercise or lack of movement, those are all now stressors that are being taken in by the body, sensed by the brain, and then setting off this cascade of response by the pituitary and the adrenal gland. And over time, we're not meant to be bathed in epinephrine and norepinephrine and cortisol. We're just not meant to be. That's supposed to be an episodic thing that's happening. But when it becomes a chronic signal, First people can start to feel very overwhelmed and then over time the brain just stops responding to that response and then people can start having actually a decrease in the production of those those chemical signals that we actually need.
0: So I was thinking about this saber-tooth tiger scenario. So we're going back to the environment in which human beings basically evolved in a prehistoric environment for lack of a more scientific term. And I was thinking like how is it that our prehistoric ancestors were less stressed than us? I mean, I understand the acute need for survival, but life was hard. There's no, you know, (laughs) indoor heating. There's, like, you might, uh, you know, freeze to death. You might, um, if you ate something poisonous there weren't cures for that like there wasn't good footwear there wasn't health care <laughs> you know all of these things that like why are we now triggering something we weren't meant to experience like how is the situation that we in evol- we evolved in less
1: stressful do you know what I mean? I hear you so how I'd answer is that let's say in prehistoric times, there were acute stressors, and, there, and that's what there were. They were episodic things that people would encounter. So a few things, I mean, I'll quote a uh, psychiatrist, Stephen Alardi. He says, we were never designed for the sedentary, indoor, sleep-deprived, socially isolated, fast food-laden, frenetic pace of modern life. And so my answer is that modern life Is stressful. We have constant exposure to screens and toxins, and I mean, we drive around in cars, and we, you know, all these things that we were never really built to be exposed to. And so, in that way, modern life, as compared to let's say pre-technology life or pre-progress life, prehistoric life, where we relied on the land, we had we relied on community to survive. You know, that's another modern life um, problem is a feeling of isolation and lack of community. Those are all things that if you have community, you only have episodic stress, you have a sense of belonging that help combat any of those feelings of stress or feelings of fear or isolation that then lead to illness. So we talked a little bit about adrenal
0: Hormones, and I want to talk about the sex hormones that come to us during puberty. Now, we learn that sex hormones have this very practical function; they make us ready to be able to reproduce. Um, They, in women, they lead to breast development, menstruation, uh, sexual desire, which is you know necessary to reproduce. But why do they make us moody? I never understood. I was never explained.
1: So that's a really, really great question. And having taken care of thousands of women and have talked to thousands of women about this very issue, and so maybe we're more specifically talking about uh, what happens premenstrually. what I see in general is that the more emotional or physiologic stress a woman has experienced, even in their early childhood, will then somehow predict how much imbalance they'll have with having their period, premenstrual sim- symptoms, other emotional or mental uh, difficulties. And so, in short, when that whole HPA axis becomes disturbed, what we talked about before, then the signaling to the ovary and the signaling to the adrenal gland becomes dysfunctional. And when cortisol is prioritized with chronic stress, all the body's resources in terms of hormone production get focused on cortisol. And gets guess what gets short shrift? Short Testosterone, estrogen, progesterone. And progesterone is our very calming, soothing, helps us sleep hormone. And that's the, the hormone that is supposed to rise after ovulation and stay at a fairly high level until both progesterone and estrogen drop, and then we have a period. But if you were to look at women who have quote unquote premenstrual irritability or premenstrual syndrome or PMDD, they may have some rise in progesterone, but it's not sustained, or they have very low level, or they don't, or they don't ovulate, um, and then they don't have much progesterone production at all, and so. It generally comes back to stress creating an environment where our estrogen and progesterone are not they're not prioritized, and especially progesterone. That's interesting
0: because I often associate progesterone with PMS. And you know, one of the doctors I interviewed in the first episode talking about how uh, progesterone only birth control can be hard. Um, specifically for endometriosis, was that he said progesterone is the PMS chemical. If you give too much of that, then you get really bad PMS. But you're saying it, you're almost saying it's like uh, the other way around.
1: So we have to make a distinction here. So when we, when I'm talking about progesterone, I'm actually talking about natural progesterone progesterone that our body produces when we take we can take natural progesterone however in birth control pills and in some hormone replacement therapy you're actually taking a synthetic progesterone or a progestin so generally what happens when a woman's taking a progestin is that her normal signaling to produce progesterone natural progesterone which is that relaxing calming hormonal signal it kind of gets taken over by that progestin. I mean, I had that very experience when I was in college that I started taking birth control pills and I went and I started having a lot of mood changes premenstrually. And I went to the clinic and I said, this is really affecting my mood. And they said, no, it's not. And I said, yes, it is. (laughs) And so the whole thing is that we have to make a distinction between a synthetic progestin with our progestin and natural progesterone so in some cases if a woman then this can be a huge issue in terms of being sexually active with a partner and wanting to have reliable birth control if a woman's on birth control pills and she's especially sensitive to progesterone deficiency because she's taking a progestin, and again, everybody's different. Not everybody's affected in this way. Sometimes you can supplement with some little bit of natural progesterone to help with that kind of progesterone deficiency with taking birth control pills or progestin-only pills.
0: I wonder if estrogen gets too much attention because I feel like um, things like postpartum depression and menopause are popularly associated with a drop in estrogen. Do you think the progesterone is, a, is is neglected here in this picture?
1: I think there's probably less awareness. And it really is sort of an imbalance between estrogen and progesterone, so however that manifests for somebody. So estrogen in general is, as you said, re- responsible for you know our, our feminine characteristics. Um, for the growth of the lining of the uterus. It's actually very necessary for our well-being, our cognitive well-being, our bone health, our heart health, all those things. It's just that when progesterone, estrogen needs progesterone to kind of count, to counterbalance some of its stimulatory effects. So estrogen is predominant in the first half of the cycle, and then after ovulation, progesterone is more predominant probably there is a big focus on estrogen without really understanding the very, very important effects of progesterone. Postpartum depression is actually a huge deficiency in progesterone. That when, often women will go on a progestin-only pill while they're breastfeeding because they don't want to interfere, they feel that the estrogen is going to, the synthetic estrogen is going to interfere with their breast milk production. And then lo and behold, we've set a susceptible person up for a really major problem with serious postpartum um, mood problems.
0: When I would go to the doctor, when a woman goes to an OBGYN, you know that the, the chemicals are synthetic most of the time, unless you get something like uh, Premarin, which is estrogen from horse urine, right? But they don't make a distinction when they give you estrogen or progesterone, they They don't explain that it's replacing your natural hormones. And it almost seems like it has the opposite effect to the intended effect sometimes. Like, why is there this huge confusion about hormones?
1: So what I'll say first is that I also didn't... I mean, it's the way that we're taught. In medical school? In medical school and in residency. We don't... We don't learn it in the way that I understand it now. And I'll just speak to my own experience, and that may have something to do with my own misunderstanding when I was learning. However, you know, we were taught birth control pills were generally a good thing, you know. And and to be able to manipulate someone's cycle by giving them a, a very constant signal of estrogen and progestin was a good thing in terms of contraception, in terms of suppression of menstrual pain, in terms of all of these Things and yet what we weren't paying attention to was the disruption of natural signals within. We thought, oh, it's okay to take over those signals and to control reproduction in this way without really looking at the impact of doing that. Because doing that not only affects hormonal health, but it actually can affect the absorption of, of different vitamins and minerals and gut health. and So it has all these effects that we never really learned about or were taught, where we just kind of sold a bill of goods. And I, I think most physicians have really, really good intentions for their patients. It's a matter of really not knowing enough about what we're doing.
0: So what are some of your big tips for women who want to improve their mental
1: health? Oh. Well, the big thing is, for all of us, is how do we learn how to Relax. I mean, really let go and relax. And so I think the number one thing is really reflecting on how can we create space in our lives. There's a little bit of a, I think, of a badge of honor in in the United States of being really busy and having a lot of accomplishments and... You know, just say as a mother that your, your children are well accomplished and you take care of the home and you go to, you know, you, you just do everything so well, you know, and that's like the, the pinnacle of a fem- the female existence. And yet it's not because we lose ourselves in that process. And really what's most important is, in terms of being human, is having a life that's satisfying and joyful. And so to take some time and reflect whether we have enough space to even consider relaxation. Because ultimately, if the body's not relaxed and doesn't have signals of relaxation and we're constantly in this survival mode of surviving our life and you know feeling overwhelmed and all of these things, then our body doesn't really get the appropriate signals to do what it's meant to do in terms of breaking down food and our gut health and our mental health and all of that. So the first step really is... is to take some time, which saw a lot of us will say we don't have enough time, but to take some time to reflect on how to create space. And I, I'll just say, for example, I was a conventionally trained OBGYN for 13 years, and I was in residency for four years and medical school for four years. So, you know, that's 21 years of my life that I was on the edge. And part of the reason I left conventional medicine was because I personally didn't have any space. And that was two and a half years ago, and it's been profound for me to create space in my life, to be able to slow down and say, oh, maybe I can take care of myself.
0: You can find Dr. Wei at JessicaWaiMD.com. That's Wei spelled W-E-I. She's also on Facebook at Women's Holistic Health LLC. Coming up after a break, Jameson Webster, psychologist, psychoanalyst, author, and defender of hysteria. As patients, there's a lot we don't appreciate or don't see about the medical world. The podcast Antidotes: Stories in Medicine offers a weekly view from inside. Host Christine is a nurse practitioner and former EMT, and her guests come from across the field of medicine. Now, Christine warned me that her podcast is not for the easily grossed out, but if you were really easily grossed out, would you be listening to this show? If you want to continue with the mental health mood, start with a recent episode, Nursing the Mind. Christine's guest speaks compassionately about her work on an inpatient psychiatric floor, and talks about her own mental illness. I also recently got into this podcast called Household Name, it's from Business Insider. They tell surprising stories behind the biggest household name brands. The episode I'm recommending to you is called Rusting Botox Face. It gets at questions like, how important is it that a woman looks approachable? And can changing your expressions change the way you feel? Also some medical applications of Botox that I didn't know about, highly recommended. Sometimes I feel like I'm butting heads with the world, particularly in work situations, whether it's explaining I might be a bit off my game today because of my period cramps or expressing shock that I'm the only one in the newsroom scheduling tweets before they post. I often say something just to the point where it would be in my interest to sit down and shut up or smile and nod. Often it's the desire to protest some injustice that others see wise to tolerate, at least for the time being. Since these behaviors are affected by changes in my hormones and I live in a patriarchal society, I can't help but think there's a connection between being a woman and this kind of a protest. The voicing of discontent with the way things were was characteristic of women who Sigmund Freud classified as hysterics. So were physical symptoms like pain or temporary paralysis that didn't have a clear medical explanation. Hysteria is no longer considered a valid diagnosis. It's not in the official manual of psychiatric disorders, and doctors can't bill for it. But psychoanalyst Jamison Webster says hysterics, who are mostly but not all female, still exist. And while they may drive the people around them up a wall, we wouldn't want to live in a society without them. Jamison Webster is a clinical psychologist, educator, and writer in New York City, and she's kind of a badass. Her new book is Conversion Disorder, Listening to the Body in Psychoanalysis. I'm going to start off by talking about hysteria, Mm -hmm. which has this long history and kind of converged with Freud and this birth of psychoanalysis. So can you start by telling me what hysteria was before Freud? Uh
2: Um, Well, the term goes back to the Greeks. Hysteron means uterus. And they thought that the reason that women went, quote, unquote, mad was because their uterus would move around their bodies. And there's actually, like, long um, treaties on this that you can find, sort of, an ancient medical texts. And they had all of these strange solutions, like they would puff smoke up women's vaginas and then hope that it brings the uterus uh, back into place. So that's where it started. And it was always this strange thing that it was a, a women's disease. It was this idea that it was something that could particularly go wrong with women. Um, And the medical resurgence takes place around the turn of the century. Before Freud, there were various psychiatrists, especially in France, who were dealing with women who were being institutionalized. And they were fascinated by the fact that you could kind of hypnotize them and that they would go into these extreme kind of bodily contractures. And they seemed to have bodily symptoms that didn't follow sort of physiological and anatomical lines. And what's interesting is that you have to have a medical knowledge for it to be understood that the hysterics are challenging it. And once they had this idea that the hysterics were kind of in a fight with, let's say, male knowledge or with dominant knowledge, they then went back and said it wasn't just the Greeks, but we could look at witches to various mystical saints as also a kind of hysteria because they had the same thing. They challenged the orthodoxy, and there was something very powerful about the way in which they used their bodies to do that. Um, So that was the sort of history of it. And the, the change that Freud made was that instead of wanting to kind of catalog this scientifically or even psychiatrically, he listened to his patients who told him to listen to them. So many think that Freud invented the talking cure, but it was actually these women who said, stop hypnotizing me, stop trying to figure me out and just let me speak. And he did. And he said, you know, forget this hypnosis thing. That was the moment in which he gave up hypnosis. And he said, they will tell you what they need to tell you about their symptoms. Um, And that's what sort of invented the talking cure, which is, you know, the origin of all of the talking therapies that we have now. So can you
0: share a little bit more about how hysteria gave birth to psychoanalysis?
2: Well, I think what they explained to Freud was, one, that they were unhappy in their lives and unhappy in the way in which society told them that they had to be a certain way, um, what they had to do with their bodies, what they had to do with their sexuality, what they had to do with their minds, and that they could create symptoms as a means of escape from a situation in which which they were unhappy. And it's not as if this is a conscious Thing. It's not to say like, okay, well, I don't like my life. It, it just happens. And by virtue of speaking about what's on their mind, their dreams, even just going through their symptoms, like when did you first have that back pain, um, this whole world opened up that they themselves didn't know existed. Um, And I think that's a really important point, because it means that it's unconscious, and it's by virtue of this that Freud discovered the unconscious, and all of the unconscious mechanisms, like how representations in the mind function, how amnesia works, how the mind-body split happens, how it's actually not such a split, how connected it is. And it's not as if Freud had these ideas until he was told them by these women. What are the symptoms of hysteria, or what were they? (laughs) um so they'd be strange bodily symptoms they'd be um, symptoms that affect consciousness so meaning that you have fugue states or you have blackouts or you have periods where you don't know who you are or what you are something that affects literally consciousness um pains paralysis strange symptoms in the body um suicidality um, often you find kind of um, an embroilment with the family and an inability to separate from them, so kind of an embroilment with the drama of the family. Um, you would find a conflict, like a sort, of, a sort of a conflict to the extent that what you say you want is not what you're doing and you don't know why you're doing as opposed to not what you say that you want. Um, there's always this question Freud asked, which was, "What does a woman want?" And it wasn't—he wasn't saying like, "What do they want?" You know, <laughs> even with an idea that there'd be an object of their desire, but that their desire is a mystery to themselves. And often, the way in which this mystery of their desire manifests itself as in making all of these people around them have desires for them. Everybody wants a quote-unquote hysteric to do X, do Y, do Z, stop doing X, stop doing Y, stop doing Z. And her desire can't push back against that. And that's the importance of the psychoanalytic treatment is to have her understand what it is she wants so she stops this war, let's say, with everyone around her. Although the feminists, in relationship to psychoanalysis, love the hysteric for the war that she wages.
0: That's so interesting because I feel like the narrative that I came to first about hysteria is a it was a sexist anti-woman diagnosis. That you know, doctors pinned on women when they didn't know what was wrong with them, and that their symptoms were a r-
2: result of having, w- having being women, having uteruses. I don't think if you read Freud on hysteria, I don't think you see what you were talking about, that it's, it's, it's pathology. I mean, he, to a certain extent, and the people who heard that, I think, um, followed that line. Of course, psychiatry came in, especially in the 1950s, when it, in, in America in particular, where it had this like, incredibly powerful hold over everything and um, treated these women terribly. But in that moment, they were precisely being, I think, anti-Freudian and anti-feminist at the same time. Um, And Freud will say, and and this was kind of what was important to me in the conversion book, that hysteria is the only quote-unquote psychopathological structure that has a true symptom. And the symptom, by the way, is not a bad thing. The symptom is a creative construction by the mind to deal with the problems of the world. And we need our symptoms. Our symptoms are an invention. They're a new response. And they also talk about the pains that we sometimes recognize without allowing ourselves to recognize. And the point of analysis is not to eradicate symptoms. It's to make the symptoms something not that you suffer from, but that you can make work for you in your life. And, of course, the great um, example here would be art, that everyone... Um, that every artist is essentially using something of their symptomatic life to create something new. I mean, this is why an artist will have a particular style that's responding to something in their life.
0: But Freud himself was no feminist. As you write in the book, he actually left, he got kind of frustrated with the hysterics and left them and didn't come back to them for
2: many years. years, Yeah, I mean, but his first case with Dora... Um, who's this sort of famous 16-year-old patient, um, is this patient who like left her treatment and was furious with Freud because of his heterosexual patriarchal biases that it would have been impossible for him to really have gotten around in 1905 when he was doing the case. And what's interesting is not that he has a patriarchal heterosexual bias, but that he somehow makes it evident to us that he has it and that she challenges it. At the very end of the case, he says, he says I, I couldn't understand what I needed to understand at the time that I was treating her, which is why she left the treatment. That the frustrations that she had with her parents reappeared with Freud, that Freud couldn't hear them, that her criticisms about him and the way that they were mirroring her criticisms of her father, and the case died. So what
0: happened to hysteria um, when it was taken out of the DSM, why, w- why was it taken out? And then what
2: diagnoses do people get now mm-hmm. who would have been diagnosed with hysteria in the past? Um, hysteria was taken out of the DSM because it was seen as too psychoanalytic, too cultural, and therefore not like hard scientific enough. Because, because the diagnosis of hysteria is so embroiled with questions of culture. Where are women now? What are the women fighting? You know, what are they responding to? Where are we with sexuality? That, I mean, how can this go in a, docu- in a, in a, a, a psychiatric document that is <laughs> trying to be quote unquote objective? Conversion disorder is definitely there, which means psychosomatic symptoms for the most part and a whole range of them. And conversion disorder is a special one that's a nod back to Freudian days to the extent that it speaks to the disturbances of consciousness. Um, and disturbances related to neurological functioning. So it's something about the way in which you really see the, the effect that the mind can have on the body. Um, but the other diagnosis that people get is borderline psychopathology, which is um, <laughs> it's really taken everything wonderful about hysteria and turned it into a diagnosis that basically says I hate this woman for being angry and passionate and out of control. Um, I mean, basically, if you say, oh, she's borderline, you mean, like, she's terrible and untreatable and going to be really difficult and annoying and, like, maybe send her to somebody else. Are you familiar with the show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend? I'm not, but I heard about it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, the the protagonist in the third season, she gets a diagnosis of borderline. Uh And by that time, you find out that she's, like, an incredible person and she's incredibly smart, but she gets totally obsessed and takes really drastic actions and... She just, like, has spent her whole life wondering, like, what is the formula for being normal and why am I not it? And and the thing about the show is it's a musical. And so the character has these musical fantasies. Like, she's a lawyer in the show, but they show, like, in college how she loved the theater. And then, of course, the actress herself you know, went to Tish and has musical training. But for the character, when she's singing in real life, like she can't really sing. So it's just completely her fantasy life and her projections and her desires. And it's, uh,
2: oh, it's wonderful. You see, the hysteric was called the daydreamer of yesteryear. That she's always daydreaming, and then there's this question of the relationship of bringing her fantasies into reality, and she confronts a reality where the fantasies don't quite fit, and then this is where things break down. The anger that I find within the diagnosis is like, oh, they act before they think. Oh, they're unrealistic, they idealize people, then they devalue them. Oh, they're always splitting, things are good and bad. Oh, there's black and white thinking. Oh, they can't control themselves. Oh, they're always manipulative. Oh, they can't tolerate separation um but you know these symptoms are not i mean whatever those things are i mean it's about something else it's about this question of the immensity of a desire that can't find a place in the world which i imagine part of this show is telling you about
0: so we we talked a little bit about crazy ex girlfriend um but um, not everyone sort <laughs> heard of that show. So I thought that maybe we could talk about celebrities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I'm thinking about, you know, you mentioned Marilyn Monroe in, the, in your email, Princess Di, Angelina Jolie. But even people who are not not that level of fame, I feel like you can kind of get away with it. Even on social media, mm-hmm. saying what you think and being a hysteric. And I think, is there a level of power... Where you can be like a, a happy, healthy, <laughs> you know, hysteric. I don't know if "well adjusted" is the right term, but <laughs> is this like a level at which it's it's okay and it's not a problem?
2: Yeah, I don't. I don't think it's a problem anywhere except for when it causes the person suffering. I mean, you know, with this question about art and hysteria, I mean, the the art of the style of a person, the art of a person, I mean, especially with Instagram, to the extent that it's such a display, you know, and it really brings into question the exhibitionism of the body and like how one wants to portray themselves which I think has a lot to do with sexuality and gender in fascinating ways Uh, my friend Patricia Garavici who's an analyst and has written some wonderful books is talking about this new kind of um, trans moment is also a very hysterical moment because the trans person questions like what is a man and what is a woman which is what a hysteric did from the very beginning like what makes you a man Um, so I think something very fascinating like that is going on on Instagram and I mean I love looking at this stuff Um, you know, and Angelina Jolie would be like the (laughs) bad example to the extent that she went from being this woman who was incredibly provocative and, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, she was gay and then she was with her, she would make out with her brother and, you know, she would do all of these very provocative things and also portray herself very powerfully and in different roles. Then she became like Mother Teresa, (laughs) <laughs> Which, you know, on the one hand, I'm like, great, okay, so now you have a new image, but then I'm a little disappointed <laughs> that she, like, you know, wants to be, like, the wholesome woman with the UN and she's going to adopt all of the children from around the world. And so she's, like, you know, Saint Jolie now.
0: Let's say the the patriarchy crumbles. Mm-hmm. Does Hysteria go away? That would be the idea. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about conversion disorder. I think you, you defined it before. Um, and would you say that, and you'd say it's more common in female patients?
2: For sure, yeah. I mean, I think if you go to, like, chronic pain wards, um, a lot of the, des- the problems, the sort of ill-defined problems that we have now, um, irritable bowel syndrome, autoimmune diseases, and this is not to say that, like, when you bring up a conversion symptom, you're not saying that it's not real. It has to be clear. And this is what people, this is what bad psychology has done. They're like, oh, it's psychosomatic. It's in your head. No, it's real. It's in your body. It's real. Um, and this is the power of the mind. There's a power of the mind to interact with something in the body. We don't know whether there's a weakness in the body already or whether it can cause these things outright. We don't know. Um, but nevertheless, whatever it is, is it's real. So it has to be treated as real at the same time that the person needs to be addressed simultaneously. And that's very important to me because I'm not saying, like, oh, look at all these people with these fake symptoms. They're real symptoms. Um, but I do think that when you tend to, to kind of travel in, in the places where you might find more conversion disorder, that it does tend to be women. So.
0: Do you think that psych, that psychoanalysis can cure conversion disorder or cure conversion symptoms?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, and the whole premise of the book in a way is that it exacerbates them, which isn't a great sales pitch by any means, but it's true. I mean, it it exacerbates them and it multiplies them and then it tries to crystallize them into something that can resolve then differently. I love this singing. It's so funny. Um, So... Uh, what happens in psychoanalysis is that as you ask someone to speak as freely as possible about anything that comes to mind and to bring their fantasies and their sexual life and their dreams, is that you see the body wake up more, which is often difficult, um, and that the symptoms start to shift and that, you know, things happen in the body that are surprising. Um, but I, all of this, you know, really is, is for the better to the extent that these are, these are things that need to come to the foreground. Because the more of your life that you explore and the more of your mind that you explore, I think the less afraid that we'll, that you'll be in general.
0: Can you tell me about a patient who helped, you, helped
2: teach you to listen to the body in, in psychoanalysis? Um, this is a case that's in the book, and it's good because it's a child patient from a long time ago. Um, So she was brought to me. She was from a Hispanic family, and the Hispanic family had strange ideas about the differences between girls and boys. Not strange, but um, tough for her. Um, And there were things like, you know, it was very dangerous for the women because they could get pregnant. And there's a history in the family of women getting pregnant early and then not being able to go to school and Um, you know, with the kind of Catholic influence, the sexuality on the one hand is like exacerbated on the other hand, very repressive ideas about it. And, um, she couldn't put her underwear in the laundry. It had to be washed separately. And this was a huge mystery to her as to like, what's so bad about, you know, female underwear. And, um, when she got her period, her mother said something to her like, well, now you can get pregnant. And I think this statement in its ambiguity, and also what I heard later was the strange permission, like, now you can go get pregnant, um, was something happened to her. So she had been engaging in a kind of like sexual play with her brother, and I think they had been doing this for a long time, where they would kind of like play around with watching each other go to the bathroom. It was like the typical thing that kids do. But now she had this injunction on her shoulders. Now you can get pregnant. She doesn't know what that means. And so um, she got these stomach aches that wouldn't go away. And she was going to the school nurse, and she was very anxious, and she didn't want to go to school. And her mother was like, what is going on with her? And we kind of reconstructed through the treatment that she thought that she was pregnant because she went to the bathroom and then her brother went to the bathroom and then she touched the handle after he had touched his penis and she thought, I must be pregnant. Um, What's interesting to me about this is that it it made that symptom go away but another symptom now came in its place. So the next week um, she had a new symptom was that she thought that a splinter went into her bloodstream And it was eventually going to pierce her heart and that she heard that this could happen. And it, you know, very quickly I understood that what she was explaining was that she understood intercourse, the kind of the question of penetration and the thing that can go into you and that it's going into the place where the blood is now coming out It was this kind of condensed symptom of the knowledge about intercourse that she had then allowed herself to understand that it wasn't touching, that was the truth of sex. Um, And one of the things that I also understood, though, about that as a symptom is it's not just the knowledge of sex, but it's also a very powerful desire to have sex and to have something, to have something enter into you that pierces your heart. It's a young girl's little fantasy about love and sexuality right in that moment. And, you know, this is the way in which the conversion symptom doesn't just go away. You're like, okay, you know, you've talked about it. Now we understand where it came from. And reality sets in. No, it intensifies the desire. It has to bring the desire further and further. So that's why, you know, then we get closer to the question of who she can understand herself to be as a sexual person. And to have a desire like that, that I want to have a man who I fall in love with and who pierces my heart um, in this family where this is precisely what's prohibited, um, I think was a really important moment in the treatment, that she could get close to it. And you can imagine someone for whom this remains split off their whole life.
0: It kind of makes me think of um, the old, you know, cure for hysteria being to have sex or to get married and to have preg- be pregnant. I know that wasn't your prescription and not, and not all. And I should say, like, the problem may not always be related to sex. That's another misconception about psychoanalysis, right?
2: Yeah. um, Although I think people should have sex. (laughs) I don't think it's such a bad prescription. It's never going to be the solution. I think the solution is to speak speak about sex. And I think sex is something that we need to speak, find our voice in relationship to. Then you can go have sex and then the sex will be much better.
0: Do you identify as a hysteric?
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, 100%. And it's like a joke amongst my colleagues. So they do, could you be any more hysterical? Um yeah, no, I'm always in trouble. It's always a mess. I was always fighting everybody is in a war with my father for 15 years. <laughs> um, I'm like, you know, on the one hand, you know, and even like my my position in my own field, like on the one hand, I, I have like a lot of prominence very early, but I've broken all of these rules in terms of exposing my private life and putting my image around that are like for. Bitten to psychoanalysts and it's like driving the conservative arm of my profession insane. On the one hand, they should be happy that, you know, people care about what a psychoanalyst is saying at all at this point. On the other hand, they're like, why does it have to be her? I think there's a kind of like hysterical performance that I can't stop. I I know
0: you're kind of glamorous. Like you got this cool haircut. You are in Vice magazine.
2: Like you do... Um, like, experimental theater. Yeah. I find these little places where I can kind of squeeze in. I don't know why I can do it, but if, I, if there's any reason, it's because of this hysteria, which is said, like, not that, not that, oh, God, why are they This is so boring. Um, you know, and then from that, figured out how to move really quickly in other places where I saw interesting things happening and also an openness and a desire for what psychoanalysis had to bring. Well, thank you so much, Jameson. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Jameson Webster's book, Conversion Disorder, Listening to the Body in Psychoanalysis, is out from Columbia University Press. Follow her on Instagram, at Jameson Webster. I got to tell you, there was a lot of good stuff from this interview and from the one with Dr. Way that I couldn't fit on the podcast, But you can get the extended cuts of these in future interviews by becoming a patron of Lady Parts. Follow the link in the show notes to the brand new Lady Parts Patreon page. Later on, I'll be rolling out some swag, like magnets and t-shirts with our fantastic logos. Lady Parts is produced by me, Andrea Maraskin. Production help this month from Melissa Davis. The Lady Parts logo is by Jamie Squire, and our theme song is by Adam Ragussia. Other music for this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. If you liked this episode, or even if you didn't, consider giving it a rating on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or on Stitcher. Thank you so much for listening.